Chapter 9 of A Mayfair Magician A Romance of Criminal Science This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Mayfair Magician A Romance of Criminal Science by George Griffith. Chapter 9 Murder, my dear Harold, exclaimed the lawyer sitting up with a jerk and dropping his cigar on his legs. Of course you are quite serious, but that is a very terrible word to use. And then, if there was a murder, there must have been a murderer. Now who on earth can have had any reason to murder Sir Godfrey? Listen for a moment, replied Harold, slowly, and I think I can make it clear to you. The first of those entries shows my father in what I may call the stage of suspicion. He knows that there is something wrong with him. His memory is playing unaccountable tricks. He even forgets one of the most important acts of his life a few hours after he does it. He speaks of a certain supper. I would give a thousand pounds to know exactly what he had at it. The next three entries mark a swift decline into what I can only, with all due respect to his memory, called madness. Then you will have noticed that madness is relieved by fewer and fewer gleams of reason. Then comes a complete change. The next shows him as sane as ever he was. That was written just after we came home. Then comes the last piteous, serious ending with a ghastly nightmare of words which could only have been written by the hand of a maniac on the verge of self-destruction. The day after that was written, my father was found dead in bed, self-destroyed. It was his own hand that killed him, I admit, but it was guided by another, and that was Jenner Halkine's. It could hardly have been anyone else, said the lawyer meditatively, because I am perfectly certain, from my knowledge of him, that Sir Godfrey never was addicted to the drug habit, and that being so, no one in this part of the country, at any rate, could possibly have contrived and executed such a well, I may say, such an infernal plot against the life of an innocent man and a friend. But mind you, Harold, he went on, assuming something of his legal tone and manner, I do not wish to inspire you with any false hopes. If he has done it, he has laid his hands with such devilish skill that proof of his guilt, I mean legal proof, is at present totally out of the question. What? exclaimed Harold angrily. In the face of the facts of his death in this diary? Why, surely there isn't a judge or jury with a grain of sense that would not see it just as clearly as I do. Quite possibly, my dear sir, replied Mr. Barthgate. It is quite possible, perhaps probable, that they would see it, but not from your point of view. Moral conviction, however strong, goes for absolutely nothing in a court of law, and no amount of it would stand for a moment against the hard fact that Sir Godfrey did write those instructions and execute that will. Again, the use of hypnotic influence, or whatever it is, is not recognized in English courts as it is in France as an offense, unless it can be proved that it is used to procure unlawful ends, and that, I need hardly say, is quite impossible in the present unhappy case. And do you mean to tell me that Halkine, as trustee, will be able to get probate on that will? a will obtained by fraud, as it must have been? Legally speaking, replied the other, 
I cannot see the slightest reason why he should not, and if you will take my advice, which I give you not only as a lawyer, but as your friend, you will keep your suspicions and your convictions to yourself, and join him in applying for probate. What? Help a scoundrel or murderer like Halkind to get hold of the spoils of his villainy? You must be joking, my dear sir, said Harold, ending the sentence with a harsh laugh. I was never more serious in my life, Harold, said Mr. Barthgate, in a tone as grave as his words. Please remember that, granting our suspicions are correct, we may have an enemy of no common sort to fight. No ordinary criminal, but a man of both learning and genius, and one, too, who is apparently possessed of extraordinary powers, of which we can only guess the nature. With such an adversary, the very worst possible policy would be to show hostility before you have some tangible reason for it, and to draw the sword before you are really ready to strike. At present, remember, you have not even a sword to draw. The old lawyer's cold logic, coupled with the calm judicial tone in which he spoke, acted something like a douche on Harold's heated temper. He saw the wisdom of such a course, the absolute folly of any other for the present, the moment that he got cool. He took two or three more turns up and down the room. Then he stopped at the table, mixed himself another whiskey and soda, and said quietly, and yet with a note of stern determination in his voice, Yes, I see what you mean. You are right. I'd rather have repeating rifles with him at a hundred yards, but that won't do here, so I suppose we shall have to fight him with his own weapons as far as we can, and that's not very far, I'm afraid, at present. Help yourself to a nightcap, and we'll go to bed and sleep on it. By the way, what about Grace? I suppose she'll have to know sooner or later. And, therefore, she had better know sooner, replied Mr. Barthgate, after a little pause. Of course, it is by no means a pleasant thing to do, but though she is Halkind's niece, she is also your wife. It will be a great shock to her, no doubt. But if I am any judge of character... She would rather have your confidence now than find out the truth for herself, as one day or another she must do. You are right again, said Harold, putting down his empty glass. I will show her the diary tomorrow. As somebody or other once said, I will go and seek counsel in dreams, and I'm afraid they won't be very pleasant ones, if I have any. But when he got upstairs, he found his wife robed in a flowing tea-gown of rich dull red silk trimmed at the neck and wrists with filmy black lace, sitting reading in a deep armchair, in a cosy, exquisitely furnished room, half boudoir, half dressing room, which was divided from their bedroom by a heavily curtained archway. What? Not in bed yet? Do you know it is nearly twelve, dear? he said, as she laid down the book she was reading, rose, and came to meet him. I know, dear, she replied, as his arm went round her shoulders. What do you think I have been reading? Ribot's Diseases of Personality. Her eyes sought his as she spoke, and for a few moments each looked into the other's soul in silence. They were communing in that new language which love had taught him since they twain were one flesh. Then you understand already? he whispered at length, bending down and laying his lips gently on hers. Yes, she replied as she returned his kiss. I understood as soon as I heard what the doctor said. I think I could almost guess what there is in that diary. It is something very terrible, is it not, Harold? Yes, very. So terrible, indeed, 
that I am almost afraid to show it to you, and yet you will have to know what there is in it before very long, painful as it must be to you, dearest. I have suffered that pain already, dear, she answered softly, for I have suspected all that you have, more clearly, perhaps, for I, before we were married, of course, was very close to him, so close that I might have been his daughter instead of only his niece. I have some of his power, some of his insight or second sight, or whatever it is. Yes, I could see, but I could not be quite sure. Something always made me doubt at the last. Perhaps he did. But how could that be, darling? he asked incredulously. He has not been near you for six weeks until a few days ago. Distance does not matter very much in such things, I'm afraid, she replied a little sadly. When sympathy has once been established between the stronger and the weaker, the link will stretch, but it seldom breaks. But good heavens, Grace, he exclaimed, as a sudden fear stole into his soul. You are not going to tell me that the bond between you and this man whom, I may as well say it at once since you understand, I firmly believe to be my father's murderer, still exists? She slipped out of his arms and went a few paces away from him. Standing with her little red-slippered feet nearly buried in the long fur of the hearthrug, and the soft glow of the shaded electric light falling on her glorious hair and the splendid gems he had just given her, she clasped her hands behind her and faced him, a vision of such perfect, almost unearthly loveliness, that his eyes dilated with new wonder, and his pulses leapt with joy that she was his, wholly his. But was she truly wholly his? That was the horrible doubt that her very loveliness made the more horrible. Harold, she said in a soft, clear voice, whose music was almost pain to him, I do not think that such a bond as existed between my uncle and myself can ever be wholly broken, save by death. Then, if there is justice to be had on earth, he shall... Stop, Harold, stop. For God's sake, don't say that yet, she interrupted with a little cry of pain. Remember, we do not know, we only suspect. But when we do know, if ever, your wife will be for justice and for you, she went on with a harder ring in her voice. "'Thank God and you, darling, for that,' he said, taking a step towards her with his hands outstretched. She recoiled another step, saying with a note of appeal in her voice, "'No, Harold, please, not now. Wait till I have told you what I have been staying up to tell you, something that I ought to have told you, and yet, no, I didn't tell you because I wouldn't.' "'What on earth do you mean, Grace?' he asked in amazement, the chill grasp of fear taking hold of his heart again. You will understand when I tell you, dear, she replied softly and sadly. It is a very terrible thing for a wife to tell a husband who loves her. But I can tell you now, and I will, for you must know it before you give me your confidence about your father's diary. Then tell me, tell me at once, for heaven's sake, he said hoarsely. However, however bad it is, if anything could be bad of you. It is not bad, Harold, she replied quietly yet with a quick flush which brought one of something like shame to his own. And yet, she went on, looking down at the glittering buckle on her red slipper, in one sense it is bad because it is... I ought to rather... It, it was not natural. No, don't say anything now, dear. Let me tell it my own way. It will be over sooner. Then, with her eyes looking sadly and yet steadily into his, she went on in a tone which struck him as strangely impersonal and unlike her own. 
I can hardly expect you to believe me, Harold, but it is still the truth that if it had not been for that mysterious bond between my uncle and myself, which I now hate as much as you do, you and I would never have been husband and wife. What, you and I, Grace? Are you going to tell me? I am going to tell you, she went on, scarcely heeding his interruption, that before we were married I did not love you. I had never loved any man. I did not know what that kind of love was like, and, and I never believed that I should. It is you that have taught me the real love, Harold, but it was my uncle who taught me the sham which you took for the reality. I did not know then that it was not real, that it was only a phantom love, which he had conjured up and projected into my heart, as it were, as I can see now, for his own evil purposes. Yet when I was with you, when I felt your arms round me and your kisses on my lips, I did love you, and that when we were apart it all went away. I had no dreams of you waking or sleeping as other girls have of their lovers. You seemed to be someone else, only an acquaintance, perhaps a friend, but nothing more, until I met you again, and then the strange sham love came back and cheated both you and me. Sham love? Cheat? Nonsense? Impossible, Grace! he broke in passionately. I would as soon believe falsehood of an angel from heaven as of you. It was not my falsehood, dear. God forbid, she said gently. It was his. But it was a falsehood all the same. I did not bring you the true love of a true woman, and so you were cheated into believing that I had given you what I had not to give. That is all. Can you forgive me, Harold? The next instant she was in his arms again, smiling and unresisting. Forgive you, darling. What is there to forgive to such sweet innocence as yours? Sham or no sham, that strange love gave you to me, and if Jenner Halkine were not what I believed him to be, I could bless him for it, fraud or not. But you have not said everything, dearest. You have one more question to answer. I know what it is, dear, she said so softly that her voice was almost a whisper. You are going to ask me if I love you now. Love you with the real love that a wife should give to her husband with everything else that she has to give. Yes, I do. For when we were married, something new, something that I had never dreamed of before, came into my life and seemed to transfigure it. All the world about me was different. My uncle, with his terrible influence, went farther and farther away. And you, dear, came nearer and nearer. Do you know what that was, Harold, don't you? That was true love. It must have been, for only real love can change the world like that for a woman. Are you satisfied, dear? His answer was not spoken in words. He crushed her up in his arms, and as their lips met, his soul said it to hers, and so the first threatening cloud drifted away from the heaven of their perfect happiness. End of chapter 9 Recording by Todd